Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. Hi there, Hollywood The Sequel listeners. It's John Horn here. I am popping in to say hello and also to let you know I have been busy with another Elliot Studios podcast. This one is called Retake. Every week, I talk to the industry's biggest names and change makers. I try to challenge conventional show business wisdom, and I also keep tabs on the forces that maintain the status quo. I'll also help you navigate the countless hours of entertainment that's now available by highlighting things that I think deserve your attention. And if you like what you hear, subscribe and review. We'll drop a link to the show in the episode notes. So here is Retake. If you could grant me one wish, it would be that my I could have my mother back. And what we all know, and anyone listening who's lost somebody who's essential to them knows, is that we don't get that option. They're gone forever. And so the only option we have is to make something beautiful of that absence. Hi, everybody. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. Today on the show, we have author Cheryl Strayed. She joins us in the studio along with showrunner Liz Tigelar. They are discussing their new Hulu show called Tiny Beautiful Things. It is based on Dear Sugar, which is Strayed's advice column. And let me tell you, there was not a dry eye in the studio. I'm a big crier and you'll hear me do it. Then the industry is facing a looming Writers Guild strike. TV and film work already is slowing down. We talk to an electrician about the drastic decisions that he might be forced to make if the lights go out on production for a couple of months or maybe even the rest of the year. But first... You might know the author, Cheryl Strait. She wrote a best-selling book called Wild about her adventures hiking the Pacific Crest Trail alone. Before that, she authored an online advice column that was called Dear Sugar. That was turned into a book as well, and now that book has become a TV series. It's called Tiny Beautiful Things, and it is on Hulu. Strayed and the showrunner for Tiny Beautiful Things, Liz Tigelar, came into the studio to talk about their series. The show stars Katherine Hahn, and it braids real moments from Strayed's life with fiction as we follow Claire, a floundering writer who becomes a revered advice columnist while her own life is falling apart. One afternoon in your 20s, you've gotten yourself ridiculously tangled up with heroin, you'll be riding the bus and thinking what a worthless piece of shit you are. A little girl will get on the bus with her mother, holding the strings of two purple balloons. She will offer you one of the balloons, but she won't take it, because you believe you no longer have a right to such tiny, beautiful things. You're wrong. It's a beautiful, beautiful part of the show. Um, Cheryl, was that close to verbatim of something you wrote? Yeah, that's close to verbatim of a part of the title column of Tiny Beautiful Things, Tiny Beautiful Things. I wrote it. I, I, I had a fever 
and I was coming down with a terrible flu. I was in a hotel in Washington, D.C. at a writer's conference, and the Dear Sugar column was due the next day. It was going to go on the site at noon, and I literally wrote it overnight in, a, in an actual feverish state, that column just came out of me. And it's so crazy for me to sit here in the studio and hear it now with you. And of course, to watch it on the show in the words of, of Catherine Hahn. Liz, I want to ask you about integrating that column. And it's really a piece of the math of the show about how this show works. So where did you start? How did you settle on this idea? Yeah, it took a second to settle on it. We started to imagine what would Cheryl's path have been if she had had the same past, but she didn't go on this amazing, challenging, cathartic journey of hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. And what if she hadn't become the writer she is today? What if she hadn't accomplished that yet? How would you describe the relationship between the character and yourself? I would say that she is a, a fictional character who has some things in common with me. We both write this Dear Sugar column, <laughs> but really, and we share a past. And I, I knew that from the beginning when Liz and I first started to think about the show. I said, it's really important that she shares some deep formative experiences with me. Her mom has to have died young of cancer. She has to have an estranged relationship with an abusive father. She has to have gotten married and divorced young, and she has to have grown up poor and working class in a rural environment. And those things are like pillars I return to again and again. They're the things that made me the, the person I am today. And also you see it come up in my advice a lot. And so I knew right away the advice, if we were going to use those letters that I'd written, they wouldn't really make sense unless our character had had those experiences too. But I also knew that we we needed some distance. I didn't think the most interesting version of this advice columnist was going to be um, on the same path I was on. Cheryl, you have had now two fictional moms, one played by Merritt Weaver, one played by Laura Dern. Maybe there's another one in the future. <laughs> what is that experience like, having lost your mother and then see these iterations of your mother told through different stories? Does it? I'm just curious how that feels to you to, to witness her life again. It's absolutely beautiful and surreal and moving. And it feels like an incredible gift in my life. The first thing I want, if I could, if you could grant me one wish, it would be that my I could have my mother back. And what I know, what we all know, and anyone listening who's lost somebody who's essential to them knows, is that we don't get that option. They're gone forever. And so the only option we have is to make something beautiful of that absence, to make some presence of that absence. And I do think through my writing, I have made my mom alive again. Uh, people all around the world come and say my mother's name to me, which just absolutely blows me away. And so now in, in these works in Wild and in Tiny Beautiful Things, to have these extraordinary actresses embody my mom and bring her to life in, in the only way you can through art, it's, I, it's really right up there among the most moving experiences of my life. You have explored similar ground in Little Fires everywhere. Is this something that you just feel there's no shortage of stories about that relationship between, I don't think it's just parent and child. I think it's really about mother and child. Motherhood is the story. I feel the same way about this. This is about motherhood and daughterhood, how it feels to be both, um, about what you pass down from generation to generation and how you heal. And I think... Also, it's a story about middle age. 
um, and what you reflect on and what you think about in middle age. And it's enough of a story in itself. And I think that the fact that we get to tell these stories, that there's room for these stories, that there is a huge appetite for these stories, it, it's so exciting. This may be an apocryphal story, but it's useful for this conversation. And that is when Spike Jones was making being John Malkovich, he had a conversation with John Malkovich about a scene that John Malkovich wanted to do a certain way. And Spike Jones said to John Malkovich, John Malkovich wouldn't do that. <laughs> and I'm wondering, Cheryl, as you're watching this fictionalized version of yourself in this series, do you ever say Cheryl wouldn't do that? I mean, Claire wouldn't do that. Sarah Pigeon, who plays the younger Claire, I did feel a, a bit more, um, I, I guess you could say, uh, nervous about the way that her story would unfold, the way that she would characterize, um, the, you know, some of the moments. I wanted to make sure that they did feel true to me, not that they have to completely echo or mirror what I lived through, but because she is reenacting some scenes that are very autobiographical, the stakes feel higher. The person I cared the most about when it came to casting was Frankie, the 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 Merritt Weaver who plays Claire's mother, because that you know Merritt Weaver really is playing a version of the mother who was who was mine, and I it, and I care about that you know, and so um, the further I got away from it being autobiographical, the more I could be like, I just hope you do a brilliant job and knock it out of the park. And good thing Catherine Hahn did. There's a Christmas present that is not recognized or where the recipient is not does not thank her mom for the present. And I don't know how much of that is real life, but Oh, it's all that's real life. That and, part that Yeah, and I wrote about that in in the column Tiny Beautiful Things. My so my mother died in March, but the Christmas before that was the last Christmas of her life and of course I didn't know that. She wasn't sick at that point. My mother when she got cancer, she died very quickly, only 7 weeks after she was diagnosed. And so I was a senior in college and still in the sort of height of my youthful arrogance. And she gave me this long, puffy coat, this very warm coat. We lived in northern Minnesota. And she had saved up for months to buy it. She thought it was the perfect coat for me. And I held it up and I was like, ah, you know, I think it's too long and it's too puffy. And, you know, I, I communicated as politely as I could, but, it, but clearly that it wasn't, I didn't love the coat. And then she died a few months later. And I opened my closet one day, and there was that coat, and I just wept. And I wept because I so badly wanted to go back in time and be a different version of myself. I so badly just simply wanted to say to my mother, thank you. And as I wrote in Tiny Beautiful Things, you know, I will regret for the rest of my life that small thing that I didn't say. One thing I learned a lot in those years as I grieved my mom in the, in the immediate aftermath of her death is that you never forget a lesson you learn the hard way. And I have never forgotten that. I have never forgotten to say thank you again. Thank you, Cheryl and Liz, for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. Yes, that was me choking up. My mom died 10 years ago next month. That was author Cheryl Strayed and showrunner Liz Tigelar. Their series is called Tiny Beautiful Things. It is out now on Hulu. 
When we come back and when I gather myself together, the latest on the Writers Guild contract negotiations in my regular segment with Elias host, Suzanne Wallet. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome back. Here's my weekly entertainment news chat with Elias 89.3 Morning Edition host, Suzanne Watley. Good morning, John. Good morning to you. We have talked about the Writers Guild of America negotiations with film and TV studios and streamers before. The current contract expires May 1st, so I'd like you to bring folks up to speed because the latest news certainly does not suggest that there's a deal right around the corner. It does not, although we don't know the contract, as you said, expires May 1st. Earlier this week, the Writers Guild voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike authorization vote, and that means that Guild negotiations negotiators when the contract expires can call for a strike without going back to the membership. More than 9,000 screenwriters, nearly 98% of those casting ballots voted to authorize the strike, and the balloting was about 80% of those eligible voting. So it does mean the Writers Guild, should they choose, could go out as soon as May 1st if they don't have a deal. Well, if the Writers Guild of America, the WGA, does indeed go out on strike, what do you think the impact would be? Well, it really depends on a couple of things. A lot of production companies and studios have stockpiled scripts, so they either have stuff that hasn't been filmed or they've already filmed episodes that have yet to be released, and movies work on a much different timetable. So audiences might not notice a difference for you know several months, maybe not even until the fall, unless... The Screen Actors Guild and the Directors Guild of America members refused to cross the WGA picket lines, and that would mean that there would be an immediate halt to all production. But I think there's a big question of whether or not that's going to happen. The Directors Guild sent an email to its members yesterday that I was able to see a copy of, and the DGA basically said to its Directors Guild members, if the Writers Guild goes on strike you have to cross the picket lines or you're in violation of your contract with the producer. So they're basically saying, don't honor the pickets and go back to work. Interesting. So what does the Writers Guild have to say about this Directors Guild email to its members? Um, They said, so much for union solidarity. I I talked to a member yesterday. He said, Teamsters don't cross picket lines ever. It's such a basic rule of union organizing, but, but it doesn't exist in Hollywood. Hmm. And what have the producers said? Well, the Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers dismissed the strike authorization vote even before the results were announced. They said in a statement that, quote, its inevitable ratification should come as no surprise to anyone. The issue with the AMPTP is that their members have conflicting agendas. What Amazon might want isn't necessarily what Sony might want. What is important to Apple may be irrelevant to Disney. When the United Auto Workers negotiates its contracts with Ford or Chrysler or Caterpillar or John Deere, they do it separately, company by company, because those companies have different agendas and needs. 
Hollywood doesn't work that way. So the AMPTP has members that might have conflicting interests or they might not care about something that's very important for another company. And that's the problem that the AMPTP has coming up with a unified game plan when there's so many different competing agendas within its membership. I, I don't envy their negotiators having to hear from so many disparate factions. Thank you, John. Thank you, Suzanne. Coming up, what this all means to people who work in the industry who are not writers. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. As you just heard, a Writers Guild strike could happen as early as May 1st, and that's less than two weeks away. If it does happen, it will affect not only writers, but also all those people involved in production. From hair and makeup to people who work craft services, putting out bagels and red vines to costumers, pretty much everybody on a set. I talked to one of those people who is typically on a set, electrician Mario Colimun. I asked him what it will mean for him and his family if a strike goes forward, and then what will happen if it continues for months. How long have you worked in the business? I have been officially in the union for a little over six years, but I've been making my living doing it since 2012. And in the past couple of months, have you noticed anything in terms of the pace of production? Yes, I would say that I've noticed a pretty severe difference in the traditional production. I, uh, the industry scuttlebutt attributes that to uh, two things. First of all, the sort of perception that there was a streaming bubble, which meant that there was a lot of TV shows getting uh, greenlit and produced for various different streaming platforms. And that sort of cooled off. But second, and very realistically, uh, producers are very gun shy about greenlighting anything right now because of the ongoing negotiations with the Writers Guild of America. So shows that might be starting production or you thought could have been starting production six months ago aren't now. That's correct. It does seem to be the case. And, you know, the speculation, and again, this is just sort of boots on the ground speculation, so take that with a huge grain of salt. It's just that, you know, you're not going to greenlight a show if you only have X number of scripts out of 10, let's say four or five right now. So if you greenlight the show, you're spending all the money, you're getting everybody involved, you're, you know, crewing up, you're finding the people who are going to take care of you for the run of the show, and then halfway through the show, you have to go, hey, well, it turns out there's a strike, so everybody, uh, you know, take five, and then you lose the people that were on because everyone has to figure out other arrangements. So, yeah, it seems to be that things that would be in production right now just aren't going into production, at least until we know it's going to happen at the end of, uh, at least earliest June, it looks like. Yeah. Well, it, the, the contract expires May 1st, and there is yeah, a question so May- now that if the writers go out... It could be the case that the members of the Directors Guild of America and Screen Actors Guild, AFTRA, of which I'm a member but wouldn't be affected by this, would not cross the picket line. So that could, there could be an immediate stop to production totally outside of certain non-WGA shows. So let me step back for one second. Are you generally on staff or are you freelance? Is it a gig economy for you? And is that the way it's always been? I have been fortunate for the last couple of years to be on staff for the run of shows that I've been on. 
as someone who's gotten, you know, more mature and gone from a young guy by himself to someone who has a wife and a mortgage, it's, it's become more interesting to me to know where paychecks are coming from. Uh, so in between shows, you'll often find yourself with free hands and telling folks, hey, I, you know, I'd love to come out and see people. Remind everyone that you are hireable. Uh, so you kind of mix in freelancing with what is hopefully a six month, nine month long gig. And those have been what I've been lucky enough to have for the last two years. And you're a member of IATSE? That is correct. IATSE Local 728. Let's talk about economics. You mentioned that you have a mortgage. The Writers Guild has a strike relief fund. And other guilds, if they're on strike, might. But when it's a guild that isn't part of the strike itself, IATSE probably doesn't have ways to help all of its members. How long would you be able to go without work? Well, you know, that's my wife and I have been kicking that around. Uh, luckily, I am part of a dual income, no kids uh, household, which right now means that we have an amount of flexibility that I imagine a lot of the membership does not have. But if push is shoving and, you know, this could go six months, I think that we start looking at alternative options. I have strong roots and I hate to say it based on political situations, Florida right now. And there are some good economic opportunities there adjacent to what I do. I would not be in the film industry if I had to move back to Florida. But, you know, that would be the next thing. And yeah, if we're six months into a strike, I, I don't see how I don't end up doing something like that. Were you, I'm trying to think, the last time WGA went out was 2007, 8. So you were not in the business at that point. Is that right? The 100 days. That's correct. I was literally just getting out of film school and going, where can I work? And everyone went, well, uh, bad time. But, I mean, you know, the answer to that question was immediately reality TV. So. Mm -hmm. in, in certain guilds, health insurance is triggered by number of hours worked or money made. Is it true for IATSE that if you don't hit a certain minimum, you don't get health insurance? And for some people, including maybe yourself, might that be an issue if there is a strike, you don't get the hours to qualify for health insurance? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, we have a quarterly bank that we're required to fill. And then there is some amount of like overage that, you know, in the case of extreme emergency you can utilize. But again, in six months, that bank is going to be depleted and I'm just going to be going, oh boy, I hope I don't get sick, which, uh, you know, not ideal. What are your colleagues talking about when you are with friends talking about the possibilities for a work stoppage and, and maybe a, a complete shutdown if other guilds won't cross? What is the mood among your, your peers right now? Well, uh, whatever the humor is the day you wake up to go to the gallows, but not on the platform yet. So, yeah, you know, it's a lot of people going, ha, 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 boy, this is going to get rough. I, I've said multiple times we're going to have a weird year, and that's been pretty much the sentiment. Uh, you know, the film industry, in my experience, luckily, has been very good at looking out for one another. So those who are fortunate enough to be on shows that are ongoing right now have done a really good job of reaching out to people and saying, hey, you know, I haven't seen you in a little while. How's your work situation? You know, which means that someone like myself, who does happen to be between jobs right now, I'm getting a little less work than I might, but people are looking out for me. And that's been a real godsend. So that offsets the amount of really it's hard to not to you know kind of doom spiral when you're talking to people that are all in the same boat with you but that's how we've been coping is just saying like it may get really rough but at least we know we're looking out for one another what about work that typically at this point in the year that you might be booking for june july august are you booking those things or is it kind of a flashing yellow light right now 
I would say it's an extreme flashing yellow light. Uh, I can't speculate exactly as to why, but I haven't even heard anything much about uh, feature film work going up. And it may just be an anticipation of if, you know, if it does come to pass that the DJ and SAG both do have a work stoppage, you know, that means that if it's filmed with a camera on an actor, it's not going to go through. So I think, yeah, it just seems like everything is on pause until we figure out what the next step is. Let me ask you this last question. We talked about your work in an affiliated business, and then there are vendors with whom you work. They might be lighting supply rental companies. You might be using vendors who are not on a studio lot. It could be small businesses. I suspect that those people could be affected just as badly as people like you. Yeah, it's an interesting dichotomy in our industry these days. Uh, To put it bluntly, there is one very large company that does a huge amount of the renting uh, all over Los Angeles. They have warehouses. They they acquired several other s- smaller but still very large companies and are basically the game in rentals. And then there's like a secondary company, both of whom I think if, you know, they have to just sit on assets that they can't rent for whatever amount of time will be fine. But uh, some of the people that I enjoy working with the most are the people who are running what essentially would amount to mom and pop shops where they are, what six people deep for hiring and they have a warehouse space somewhere accessible with a couple of trucks and they manage their own gear and you know you shake hands with the person whose gear you are taking and putting on a truck that morning and i i cannot imagine being in their position because you know that money that gear all costs money and warehouse space and the overhead does exist and if and if we're just not making as much stuff i i would hate to be in that position This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad we connected. Absolutely. Feel free to follow up whenever. Uh, At the very worst, I'll tell you how my building model starships hockey got. (laughs) Okay. And we will be talking with Mario in the coming weeks. And Mario, one request, please send us photos of your starship. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman. The editor is Suzanne Levy, with special thanks this week to Parker McDaniels. Listeners like you help make Retake possible. Please donate now at las.com forward slash join. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.